Hello and welcome back to Off Campus History. I'm your host, Lewis Reedwood. On today's show, we're having a more introspective discussion about history podcasts. As anyone listening to this right now can attest to, podcasts have become an important medium through which people learn about history and enjoy history-focused entertainment. Shows ranging from Dan Carlin's Hardcore History to Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History to Leah Simone Bowen and Phelan Johnson's The Secret Life of Canada and many, many more shows have become a huge part of how the public engages with history. Today I'm joined by Sean Graham to discuss the history podcasting space. Sean is an adjunct professor of history at Carleton University whose research focuses on the early history of CBC Radio. Uh, For anyone not in Canada, the CBC is the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Sean is also the host and producer of the History Slam podcast. History Slam is the podcast affiliated with ActiveHistory.ca and has been running for about 10 years. Sean has released almost 220 episodes at the time we're releasing this podcast. His show features conversations with historians about a wide variety of topics, mainly on Canadian history, and often his episodes involve interviewing a historian about a recent book they've published. It's a really great podcast, and if you're interested in my podcast, I think you'd also like the work that Sean is doing over on the History Slam. Today we chat about the world of history podcasting. To what extent was historical content a part of early CBC broadcasting, and how is podcasting today different from that? What are some of the decisions and considerations that Sean has made over the course of creating a long-running history podcast? Why are so few history podcasts run by academic historians, and what are the benefits of academic historians getting into podcasting? What do popular history podcasts do well, and what are some of the limitations of the medium? All this and more on today's conversation. Let's get into it. All right, I'd like to welcome to the podcast... Sean Graham. Sean Graham, adjunct professor of history at Carleton University and host of the History Slam podcast. Thanks for making the time to join me today. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, Excited to be here. Could you please introduce your research interests to the listeners and, and also tell us a little bit about History Slam? Sure. So I am a historian of Canadian broadcasting. My PhD was in the history of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, I did my master's on radio before the CBC in Canada. And then when I I moved to Ottawa to do the PhD at the University of Ottawa, I initially had a different idea. I thought I would switch it up, do something in political history. And it was pointed out to me that that was a terrible idea because I wasn't super interested into it. And there was this gap in the literature that I think I'm the only one who cared about it. Mary Vipon, maybe a little bit. Uh, she was nice <laughs> enough to to also be somewhat excited about it when I talked about it. But in, in this era between 36, when the CBC starts, to 39, when the Second World War starts, there, there wasn't too much in that era. A lot of people focused on the change in broadcasting regulation around 35, 36, and then jumped, jumped to the war, because that's obviously very important in the CBC's history. But I wanted to tackle that transition and what it actually looked like in those three years. So I I did that. And in the process of being a historian of broadcasting, around 2011, I was at a conference in the fall of 2011, where Ian Milligan was there. And Mm -hmm. Tom Peace was there, two of the founders and and editors at the time of Active History. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about audio. And I, I was talking about radio, how much I love radio, and how I think history could be told effectively through audio. And I said to them, why don't you do something on the site? 
that's audio based. And they said, well, we don't have time. You can do it. And so that, <laughs> that was that was essentially how it started. And over the next few months, I wrote up a little proposal for what I thought a show could look like. I did a pilot episode with my friend Aaron Boys, who has subsequently been on 20 times or something to talk about various things. And they said, yes, just, just go for it. And the show has kind of morphed over the 10 years since, but it's essentially a I call it a conversation show, not so much an interview show, even though it is essentially an inter- interview show. But I, I go and the the premise is I talk to people who are doing things that I find interesting in history. And that that's mm-hmm. basically it. And the pitch of the show was I'll do stump, something or stuff that I would want to listen to. And let's hope that other people agree with me. And so far, there's been enough that it's been worth my while to keep doing it. Right, right. Well, I really, I, I really enjoy the show. I like that the topics are really varied, and I think there's kind of something for everyone who is interested in Canadian history, essentially. You know, some of your recent topics on Canada's drug laws, integrating Indigenous content into the Canadian education system. Uh, I live in Toronto now, so the history of Young Street was a, an interesting <laughs> one for me. Yeah. And I'm originally from Saskatchewan, so I, I really enjoyed yeah. your, your recent episode on the sort of political history of Saskatchewan transitioning from left-leaning politics to right-leaning politics. Mm -hmm. So I I really like the variety on the show. And um, media history was one of my comprehensive exam fields. My research was about a a bit of an earlier period than radio history, but I certainly did a lot of radio history in in comps. So uh, (laughs) sort of familiar with some of the early CBC history and, and all that, Mary Vipond and so forth. Yeah, well, you can't you can't get away from Mary Vipon when you're talking, and, and I don't think you would want to, right? <laughs> like I really like no, that no, stuff. No, no, no. And uh, it, it, but it is it, it's fascinating to me to think about media in that era because it's it it's the speed of it, and I, I think when we think about media now and discussions over misinformation in social media and and other areas it does echo a lot of the discussions that were going on with the advent of radio. And and to me, it's really just the speed of things as radio made it faster to get information from the source to the consumer. And mm-hmm. then television made it, if not faster, maybe a little more intimate in that you had the images to go along with it. And then certainly the internet becomes faster and even social media with smartphones is it, you have direct access to stuff all the time. And so the questions over, content and who is governing it, who is ensuring good information, those discussions that are happening today are not dissimilar to the discussions that happened in the 1920s and the 1930s. And even from all accounts, what was happening with the increased use of the printing press and the the mechanization of that, that you have greater access to information. And there's always fears from those gatekeepers of, well, what happens? It's essentially what happens to us. Like we know what the good information is, even if sometimes they're lying about it, that, that is just echoes through time. And that's why I really like studying media stuff because one of my favorite lines in history is history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And media history Mm. is a great example of that, that very similar discussions. You have echoes of the similar questions every time there's a new technology introduced in media. And that, that's why I love doing it. And that's honestly why I like being a part of it too, being part of a new form of media which isn't all that new anymore, but being able to tell stories in a different way than people have before. And it's just being not only aware of the realities of it and the challenges of it, but I think it also helps inform my understanding of the stuff that I research. 
That makes a lot of sense. And that sort of gets to my next question a little bit, which is why you created your podcast, which you've sort of alluded to a little bit already in terms of the, you know, meeting up with the sort of history slime or not history slime, active history editorial team. But I'm interested in why you decided to create a podcast as opposed to, you know, a blog or a YouTube channel or other sorts of digital media. I assume your interest in the history of radio is part of this. Yeah, that, that's probably the biggest part is that I'm interested in radio and I'm interested in audio forms of communication. Mm-hmm. So that, that's probably the biggest one. And at the time in 2011, 2012, I could be wrong on this, but as memory serves, YouTube wasn't really YouTube yet, right? It was still 10 minute video max length. Uh, you, so you couldn't have the the form of discussion that I wanted to have in video. I was not interested in doing something narrative, like a documentary type of a, a thing that you might do on video, nor frankly, do I think I have the capabilities to do it. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't have been very good. Of course, I would have told you at the time, I probably don't have the capabilities to do audio either, but I've, I've kind of learned <laughs> how to do it. Uh, so so video was never something that, that interests me. And I mean, the, the site is a blog, right? The site has written posts already. So for me, I felt to add something to the site that was different and unique, and there was actually a value to it, I felt it kind of had to be the audio form. And, and then the other part of it for me is, I, it, I'm not as concerned about this as I used to be, but as a grad student, right? I started my PhD in 2009. So I had just come out of comps in 2011. I was like a year out of it. And one of the things I was always worried about or wondering about is like, how do you keep up with everything, right? Mm -hmm. So you spend this year totally engrossed and then what happens? And how do you kind of maintain some sort of connection to where the the trends are going, what people are writing about? And I thought, well, what if I talk to people and got a sense of a very broad base, as you mentioned, I try to keep it as broad as I can with stuff that will still be of interest to me. So that was a way for me, I felt to essentially keep up with the trends, keep up with the new work that's coming out by talking to the people who are writing it. Mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of uh, the selfish part of it for me was the networking of it and the maintaining a connection with the ongoing literature. Because I didn't want to, at the end of doing research, as I'm sure you can attest and, and all of your colleagues at U of T can attest, once you get into the research part, you kind of go into a silo a little bit where you're just researching your thing. You're so focused on it. And then at the end of three years, I I didn't want to sort of pop my head out and be like, okay, so all that stuff that I wrote three years ago doesn't really apply anymore. I have to do a essentially a new form of comps because I haven't kept up over the past three years in order to write at least the first chapter of the dissertation. So that, that was sort of the selfish part of it as well is just making myself, I think, better by being aware of what's going on and getting outside of just broadcasting because we've never done a CBC based show. We like, I, I refuse to do it. But, uh, <laughs> any, anything that is, is purely my own research. We haven't done on the show mm. because I, I want to keep it outside my own, in my own research base. Like I don't want to be the expert on the show. I want other people to be the experts on the show and to not only teach me things, but to teach the audience things as well. That rings true for my experience as well. Similar reasons, I think, for uh, not quite for keeping up with developments in the field. But one thing that I sort of miss about my undergraduate experience is the sort of diversity of topics you get to learn about. Yeah. And 
once you get into graduate school, you really focus on your specific field, right? For me, that's 19th century American history, mainly some Canadian history stuff I hear about, but I don't really hear a lot about what a lot of people are doing outside of my own interest. And I like that part of learning about history and learning about topics that are outside of my own sort of specialty. And so part of the fun of creating the podcast for me has been learning about those other topics as well. Yeah, and I, I like what I, I like the idea that you have too. And I'll say, like one of the one of the things that I often think of if, if I'm trying to assess an idea, if I think it's a good idea, it's if I'm jealous that I didn't think of it. And one of the things that you've done that I am jealous that I didn't think of it is that experiential part, uh, like wh- where you did the Western Development Museum, for instance, uh, where you you talked about the experience of going to it and being there and what that was like. I really liked that as opposed to something that I have done is have museum curators on to talk about creating the exhibit. You know, we did one where we went to the new Canada hall with some friends of mine, but it, it was, it was different from the approach you took. And I, when I listened to that one, I was like, oh, that's such a smart idea. I wish I had, I had come up with that. <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd like to do more of those ones where I go to museums and stuff. It's a little more challenging. Sure. And especially, especially during the pandemic, less appealing to try to coordinate. So I'm hoping going forward, <laughs> going forward in the future, more more of those types of experiences. Yeah. I'm also interested in the idea of how creating a podcast relates to your research. This is interesting to me as a media historian as well. And part of my interest in creating a podcast was, even though my research is not about radio, the sort of process of creating a media product would help me learn something about media history and what sorts of decisions go into you know, editors' decisions in the past of how to make a media product. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested for you in how your research background maybe informs your approach to creating your podcast and also maybe how your podcast experience has informed your research. Yeah, it's probably more the former, or sorry, the latter than the former on that, because I, I don't think, and maybe it's subconscious if it does, but I don't think that the research really informs the way I put together the show, because the way I put together the show is really, it's two part. It's one, I, it's stuff I would want to listen to. And so I base some of it off stuff that I do listen to stylistically, at least. And then in terms of topics, as I said, I try to keep completely away from what I do. So I'm not entirely sure that the research necessarily influenced the way I put together the show. But in terms of how the show might influence the way I think about radio, I, I think there is a connection there. Because mm-hmm. one, of, one of the big things for me is I try to edit as little as possible. That is an intentional choice that I've made over the years. I go through, I edit out ums and ahs and, and pauses. But for as much as humanly possible, I try to do a live to tape show. I've never done a live, we've done one live show and one show in front of an audience, quote unquote audience. Mm-hmm. So two total, I guess. But essentially we try to make it live to tape to give it that real authentic organic feel to make it feel really conversational as, or as conversational as you can, especially in, in a format where you're not in the same room, which every episode in the last two years has not been in the same room. So that allows me to connect back to thirties radio that all was live and the struggles and the challenge that I've had and still do have 10 years later of not stumbling over words at times, uh, especially when I do the intro outro, which I don't do in the presence of the guest. Mm. I always do it after we talk so that 
what I say matches up to whatever the conversation was. So sure, yeah, I did that too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You kind of have to. So the, the amount of times though, it takes me to do it. Uh, still, I get angry at myself that it can take me 20 minutes to do the total five minutes of that. And within that, I'm still cutting things out here and there. So it gives me an appreciation for the challenge of doing things live for how talented those individuals were in the thirties and how when things went wrong, which they did somewhat regularly, I'm much softer and have a lot more sympathy for 30s radio producers and performers than I might have in 2011 mm. when I was going through some of those things and seeing like, how do you get that wrong? Like you're professionals. And I wouldn't claim to be a professional at this, but I've done it long enough that I feel like I should be better at times than I than I am. So that kind of stuff, it, it does give me a better sense of some of those behind the curtain things that when I started researching CBC and radio, I didn't have an appreciation for. And a lot of it, I still don't. You know, I don't really know how to do sound effects. You know, I know how to put in virtual sound effects into a file, but I can't create them or anything like that. So, you know, there's still parts of it that escape me. But generally speaking, I, I feel like I have a better appreciation of the challenges that they faced in putting on essentially 16 hours a day when they started in 1936 of live radio. Right. That makes sense. That sort of rings true from my experience as well of thinking about media history and you know, some of the decision, editorial decision-making that goes into it. Well, that, well, so let, let me ask you though, like when you're talking about editorial decisions, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we talked a little bit about the idea of editing. How, how do you conceive of your stuff? Cause it's one thing to have audio and to think about it. So when you're doing this and you edit this back, you can think about how it sounds, how it all works together. But it, you know, if you're doing 19th century stuff, it's the written word. So does that change your approach to thinking about editorial choice, having done this now for the past, what, you're almost, what, you're almost at a year? About a year. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess one thing that comes through for me is thinking about, I guess this isn't so much the editorial decision making, but thinking about things like the medium and the genre and how they're sort of shaping the content that I'm putting out and, right. and trying to match certain expectations from the audience for what this is going to seem like, which I think is true of printers in the 19th century or, or that sort of thing. Well, but do you feel like, sometimes I feel like, you know, I'm the one who does the show. I use the word we a lot, but but I, I'm the one who does the history slam. And yeah. I appreciate that the active history folks have given me an extremely long leash. They've never said no to anything that I've suggested, including the written things that I've subsequently done for the site. But that essentially means that when it comes to editorial decisions for the show, it's me. And I'm the one who gets to make the choice on topics, on how each show is edited, how it turns out. And that, I feel like, is is a lot of power. The audience isn't big enough to really influence much, <laughs> much of anything. But it makes me think of editors of newspapers in the 19th century. If if you were in a town that only had one newspaper yes. and you had somebody who was in a, and that editor was in a similar position to the position I'm in uh, with the history slam, the way they are with their local newspaper. And it kind of makes me think twice when I go back and read some of these things now, like, is this, is this just this person's opinion or approach or worldview coming through. And it's given me, I think, a much more critical eye to that kind of stuff than maybe I would have had otherwise. 
I think that makes sense. And I think that that is one of the benefits for me of doing everything sort of start to finish with the podcast is realizing how much of me is going into this, even when it's an interview show where most of the time, you know, the vast majority of the episodes, I'm not an expert in the topic Mm. at hand. Sort of like your show, I don't really feature my own research very much. I mean, it, it closely related topics have come up occasionally, but not that much. And so thinking about how even where I'm not an expert, I'm sort of shaping the conversation or how things come across in the end, I think is is worth thinking about for approaching newspapers in, in the 19th, 19th century. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. I want to talk a little bit about the history of broadcasting of historical content and particularly radio history. And I want to ask you about to what extent historical content has been a part of radio history, particularly on the CBC. You know, the early history of CBC, as you know, maybe the audience doesn't know, there were big debates about to what extent the public broadcaster should be sort of edifying the public, right? Improving in their minds, sort of serving a public good. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of early broadcasting featured in some way educational content. And so I'm curious about to what extent history has been a part of that. Well, it really depends, I guess, on how you define history, mm-hmm. frankly. You know, I had a professor who I, I TA'd for, Professor Fukuriotis at the University of Ottawa. He used to say to me, anything that's happened since 1945 is current events and anything before 1945 is, is history. So it depends on how, how you think of it. The CBC early on, in terms of the educational stuff was really about, well, one, education. So they did have actual like pure education, like math, reading type programs, that kind of stuff. Mm. But there was more about the sort of cultural uplifting of people, right? So it was really about what does it mean to be a Canadian? And in this case, an Anglo male Canadian, that like, what does that mean? And that's how they would conceive of education, educational programming. So in terms of history, the only time it really came up is when it was in service of that, mm-hmm. right? So when we're talking about particularly the railroad, say like the romance of the railroad and connecting people east to west, that's when it came up. We weren't talking about, and it really never came up, other issues like things like, you know, beaver pelts and and that. Like unless it romanticized, there was a certain romantic vision mm-hmm. of the past that served its overall purpose. Never really came up. In those first years, in, in the 30s, even before with the CRBC, you don't really see a lot of history stuff, in part because it's hard to do it live, right? Do you really mm. want, and sometimes professors would go on the show and do lectures or go on the air and do lectures, but I don't know how interesting really was that. And if it, and, and, and oftentimes that was more in the political sphere or some sort of sociology or economic something. Rarely would you have a history professor come on to give a pure history lecture because it just wasn't that interesting. And the idea of doing a documentary was so much harder because if you're going to go through all that production value to do a live show, just make it a radio drama because it's going to draw more people. It's going to be of more interest and you can still achieve the cultural means that you want through a fictional story. So you, you didn't get a lot of it early on when you start to get it later, you know, certainly 50s, 60s, 70s, things like the First World War, then of course the Second World War become a lot more popular to focus on. You get some of those documentary series, the ability to do recorded things more uh, economically. Mm-hmm. That makes that easier. 
So it's a transition in the second half of the 20th century, but early on, history was not a main focus unless, again, it served a very specific purpose. Right. And that rings true for, in some ways, the CBC's, one of its original purposes being to foster a sense of Canadian identity, particularly in opposition to American identity. And one of the key purposes of the CBC was, you know, people were concerned about, a certain group of people were concerned about too much American content making Canadians too American. And so content that seems to romanticize elements of Canadian history, that sort of fits that mission statement. Yeah. And and it wasn't a case too of a... this is one of these weird contradictions within the CBC early on is it wasn't a rejection of American content because some of them, not even some the most popular stuff that the CBC aired in the period from 36 to 39 was American stuff. It was Amos and Andy, right? That that's what was being Mm -hmm. aired on the CBC. But what they tried to do was, whereas the CRBC was more, outwardly anti-American, it still aired American stuff, but it was trying more vocally to to get people off American stuff. The CBC was softer in its relationship. It courted out CBS and NBC and Mutual to get their shows on the CBC, to get them off the private stations across the country. So their strategy was, let's get the most popular American stuff on our airwaves and basically do what networks do now, where, so, you know, Seinfeld started as a big hit once they put it on after Cheers because the Cheers audience was there to watch it. And and that is the strategy that the CBC used early. All right, people like Amos and Andy, let's get Amos and Andy and then put one of our shows on after Amos and Andy. Mm. So we'll lean into the fact that people like American stuff and hope that enough people stick around after the stuff they like is over to listen to our stuff. And that's how they did it. So it wasn't this outward rejection of the United States. It was, all right, let's use the popularity of the United States to filter people towards our Canadian content. And that's how we will build the Canadian culture of the CBC. And I I would argue that for the most part, it was a pretty successful strategy. Interesting. Very interesting. Back to podcasting and its relationship to history, education. What do you think are some of the advantages and disadvantages of podcasting, particularly as a medium for disseminating historical content, history, educational content, maybe? You know, I think one of the advantages, and I didn't mention this earlier when we were talking about, you know, the genesis of our own podcasts, but one of the advantages for me of a podcast as a medium is that it's pretty accessible. I'm not sure what it was like 10 years ago when you started your (laughs) podcast, but it's not particularly expensive or difficult to start a new podcast. No. So what what do you think are some of the the advantages and disadvantages? Yeah, I agree. I think accessibility both in terms of the barrier to entry is is pretty low, right? The microphone I'm on right now is the one I bought in 2012. It's the same one. I haven't I haven't changed it cuz I like it. I know how to use it and it sounds good enough for what I do. Mm-hmm. And so so the the investment, the total investment is pretty low in terms of the initial startup cost if you if you want to start a show. The other thing in terms of accessibility is that it's easy to push it widely, that there's enough podcatchers and stuff that you don't have to load things into every single app, right? Enough there's enough automation there that you can get it everywhere basically by uploading to a singular site and then applying it to, I think, I think five or six 
if, if you do that, then you're essentially everywhere because yeah. catchers pick up from various places. So that makes it easy, right? In the past, I've had to upload, like way back when I had to upload it to like four different places to spread. Like, like it, that has gotten a lot easier. So the access for the audience is a benefit as well. I, I think the other thing that what I've tried to do on the History Slam that I think differentiates me from some of the other folks who do shows, certainly in Canada, is I talk, I, I would say mostly, I would say it's if you add it up, 60 to 70% are academics, are people who work in universities. And they don't get an opportunity to go outside academics that frequently. And what I've really tried to do on the show, I'm, I'm happy when academics listen. I, I like when they reach out and have questions or have ideas for stuff that I always appreciate that. But I try to get people who aren't academics interested. And that's the focus for me is, is trying to get it beyond that. And so what we can do or what I try to do is take these academic ideas that are really in the books which is primarily what we talk about on the show and put them in a way that someone who's not an academic one can hear about what this book is because for all everything that academic presses are good at they're horrible at promotion mm. they're just awful at it they put out the book they get their money from the government to subsidize it they might if it's a certain topic send something to the cbc but then they feel like they're done so if we can get these voices out there in a way that is more accessible than the book itself in terms of you don't have to go buy it and maybe get people interested in the, maybe they do go by the, go buy the book. Maybe they don't, but at least then these ideas are heard more widely and people are thinking critically about some of these things or just thinking about them at all. So to me, that's, that's the main benefit for, for me is, is taking some of these conversations that, you know, you have it at a conference or you have when you go see somebody talk that we can bring those outside of that realm. And to me, it's not a case of changing the content of the conversation because I, I genuinely think that the audience that I have, and I think the vast majority of Canadians, if not all Canadians, have the ability to understand what we're talking about in history. The idea of a lay person's understanding or a lay person's presentation of history, that was someone said that to me once, like, you have to, you have to put your stuff as a, a lay person could understand it. It's history. Like anybody should be able to understand it. If you're writing a history that an average person can't understand, you're, I feel like you're doing it wrong. The, so to me, the problem isn't necessarily the content, in some cases, the content of books, but it's really just getting people outside of speaking only to fellow academics or even only to students. Let's, let's bring those conversations that we have that I think are interesting and engaging and present them to people who aren't in those settings where we are. Let's try to break it out a little bit. And that's what I try to focus on with the show. And I think that's one of the good things that a podcast can do. Because what I do isn't commercially viable. It would never work on certainly a private radio station. Probably, I don't know if it could work on the CBC. Maybe it could. But this is really the only format that it could work, where you could get those conversations, those voices out there so that people can hopefully engage with the ideas. I completely agree with that. This is one of the sort of my goals of creating a podcast is that, yeah, obviously a lot of the conversations we have as academics stay within academia because the vast majority of people 
and I'm not necessarily blaming people for this, but the vast majority of people are not going to pick up an academic book or read the latest article in such and such a journal or something. And something like a podcast is much easier. You know, people can spend an hour every couple of weeks or something listening to a podcast and, and, and learn something that way. And for me, especially part of my interest in talking about films, museums, games, that sort of thing is that's where a lot of people are, are picking up that, you know, what they know about history. And so for historians to be able to engage with that in a way that is not just sort of locked away in an academic book somewhere, but another place where people can access it is, is I think hopefully valuable. Anyway, my, my intent is that that's the goal. But like, it makes sense, right? That's how people are going to consume history. And that that's really how people do consume history. And the work of somebody like the other Sean, I call him the other Sean Graham. He probably calls me the other Sean Graham (laughs) at, at Carleton talking about video games and you know how how do how do students understand history through video games or how is history presented mm. through video games cuz way more people are going to play Call of Duty than are going to listen to my show and more people are probably going to listen to the history slam than are going to pick up some books that are written mm-hmm. so the the power structure of how people get history is a little thrown i don't know maybe not power structure but the the sources of it are often coming from non-historians. And I, I think places like Call of Duty and certainly documentaries and stuff do have historians on staff to try to ensure that things are done correctly. But you want to ensure that the the people who have done the work, who have the, the research background, who know what they're talking about, are the voices that are influencing the discussion and who are informing it. And that I find has not always been the case in our discipline. And in some cases has even come up with resistance from people. It's changing from what I understand. Mm-hmm. And things like, you know, active history got the public history prize from the CHA whenever it got the public history prize a few years ago. And I remember in the discussion about that, because the, the site had been asked to apply and had applied a few years in a row or had been nominated and had to submit materials. And the year that the site won, I think there was a discussion of, let's not bother, let's not waste our time. They're not, they're never gonna give it to us anyway. So let's save our time on putting together this information. And I, I think part of it was that the idea within history departments that that sort of work wasn't of value, mm. that it was academic journals, it was academic publishing, and then the conferences and everything else was kind of a waste of time. I had people tell me when I started the show, don't do it. It's a waste of your time. And I think it was well-meaning advice, but it was bad advice because there is value to it. Even if it's only personal value, there's value to getting outside of your little bubble. And I mean that in terms of academics to non-academics, ideologically as well. I've had, I've had people who I don't agree with their conclusions on the show, but it's interesting to hear them mm. and to see how they come to those conclusions. So, and as I say, the podcast is the format for it. And I, I think similarly, that's what you're doing too, is I, I found it interesting to sort of go through your catalog and to listen to some of the shows that you've done and, and just the topics of it, because it seems to me that what you want to do is directly address the historical or the forms of historical dissemination that people are consuming. Mm-hmm. And, and that's sort of the goal of it and create some sort of a, a space to have deeper conversations about 
the sources of history content that people are consuming where there is really no discussion available to people. And it seems to me that that's what you're doing. And I'm assuming that's what your motivation was. Yeah, that is sort of my intent with that is to sort of essentially meet people in the public where they're at with what they're engaging with as, as historical content. And I think one of the things that I'm thinking about as well is that, you know, I think some, for example, films or museums, academics do pay a lot of attention to because they're very focused on history, right? Like I did a recent episode on The Revenant and right. everybody doing early Canadian history had a comment on The Revenant or something. <laughs> yeah. But I also recently did an episode about Wonder Woman. And I suspect there are a lot of historians who would just sort of <laughs> dismiss Wonder Woman as oh, it's just sort of a silly movie. <laughs> right. We don't really need to talk about it. Right. But even though Wonder Woman is not supposed to be a serious historical film like The Revenant, there are a lot of people who watch it and feel like they've learned something about the First World War by watching yeah. Wonder Woman. And, and so I think that it's important for historians to engage with that. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know that in the first World War when I saw Wonder Woman. I didn't know there was a woman just walking through no man's land, <laughs> shielding herself with her bracelets. That was new information. And I've done battlefield tours in Belgium and France in the First World War. I didn't, no one ever told me that. It was uh, very enlightening to me. Yeah, they've uncovered some some hidden documents there. <laughs> this discussion about about historians and the public leads nicely into my next question, which is the relationship between journalism and podcasting and academic history. A lot of history podcasts are created and hosted by people who are primarily trained as journalists rather than academic historians. You know, we might think about Dan Carlin's Hardcore History or Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History, Slate's Slow Burn series, The Secret Life of Canada, hosted by Leah Simone Bowen and Phelan Johnson. Although they're, I think they're coming somewhat from a theater background, actually, right. m- maybe more so than a journalism background. A lot of these podcasters have maybe some experience in history. A lot of them have like a bachelor's degree in history, for example, but are mostly coming from a career in journalism. And this isn't really a new phenomenon. You know, we can think of people like Pierre Burton in Canadian history, Ken Burns in the United States as examples of journalists or, or documentarians who have essentially become very celebrated popular historians, have a huge audience, much larger than the vast majority of academic historians. But it seems to me that journalists seem to really populate this history podcasting space more so than academic historians. Why so do you think this is? You sort of mentioned already that part of this might be because historians sort of dismissed this publicly engaged work earlier on, and that does seem to be changing in more recent years. So I think that's a big part of it. But are there other factors that you think are at play? Yeah, I think one of the biggest ones is just the demands of the job of academic mm. historians that it takes a lot of time to do a podcast and it really is is a labor intensive process. So if the demands of your job require you to teach four courses a year, potentially to, to supervise graduate students to be on committees and then to do research and to produce in those other ways, then I don't know how you have time to do it. There are some who have, not that many, but I think part of it is is the realities of what the job entails to be an academic historian. And, and another part of it 
Two is the financial commitment involved. Like if you look at what you and I do, the financial commitment is not that significant. But if you look at what some of the bigger shows, like what Dan Snow does or Malcolm Gladwell or, or any of those those people who you mentioned, they have a lot of money behind them. Mm. And they have large staffs, relatively large staffs, in order to help them with research and editing and just putting the whole thing together. So the social media demands of having a podcast and growing it. So those don't exist for academics. Sure, they could potentially hire grad students if they got a grant, but where's the grant coming from in order to do it, right? So the the realities of what it takes to put it together, academics, I just don't think have the resources available to them to compete on that level hmm. that some of those other folks do. Now, that I think that could change and it, I think, should change. I think some grants should be made available. I think if you can have something that is narrative, is successful, that should count towards tenure and promotion. Like uh, to me, I don't really understand the difference between a well-researched, say, eight-chapter book that comes out through, say, U of T Press or an eight-episode little miniseries that you do in audio form. Like I, if it's the research base is the same, then tenure committees, promotion committees should allow that. And places like Shirk should allow the funding to go to things like that. And it's changing a little bit. But the problem is that right now, it seems, and I don't know if it's as much of a problem now as it was in, say, 2019, when the last time I really paid attention to it, is everybody in their proposal says, oh, we'll also do a podcast. Mm. Say, oh, we'll do this. But, oh, we'll also make it available in a podcast form. And it kind of diminishes it as this afterthought of, oh, we can just, oh, we'll just record it and put it out there, which I think that is one, it's dismissive. I don't find it offensive because they're not actually going to do it, but it's dismissive of how much work it takes to actually create a quality audio product when to just say, oh, we'll just do it afterwards. So if someone were to come with a standalone podcast project for someone like Shirk, if you're someone at Shirk who's reading applications and everyone's saying, oh, we're going to do this exhibition, we're going to do this book, we're going to do this. Oh, and then we'll also make a podcast. And somebody else says, I just want to do a podcast. Well, okay. Like, mm-hmm. so, I, so I think all of that kind of works together to make it so that it's not the most attractive thing for academics to do, nor is it feasible in a lot of cases. Right. But you're still in it. Maybe, like, you're, but you're still in all this. Like, again, I haven't applied for Shirk since I graduated. But so you're still in it and you're still in a department um, more actively than I am. Yeah, I'm still an adjunct at, at Carleton, but you're sort of there. So I don't know if, if you have a different assessment of it, because I'm sure you talked to folks before you started this around U of T. And I'm, I'd be curious to know what they said when you said, hey, I want to do this. Honestly, I didn't really talk to that many people before <laughs> I started it. It was mostly sort of a, a pandemic hobby project that I I feel like I was just spending a lot of time <laughs> not talking to my colleagues in my apartment right. in Toronto. And so this was a, an opportunity to do that. I do think that people are interested in these, you know, more publicly engaged projects, but I don't get the sense that it's changed to the extent that it's like sort of fully, you know, on par with the sort of classic published research. I think another challenge for why historians maybe don't get as into this sort of thing is that one of the things that I have learned from this is that a huge part of the work is trying to cultivate an audience, Mm -hmm. trying to actually like 
get people to listen to it. <laughs> and a lot of historians are pretty uncomfortable with that. I think there's sort of an attitude amongst academics generally that what's important is the quality of your work. And if 10 people read your book, at least it was a really good book. Right. Right. But not so much. I should try to like sort of get a lot of people to listen to this. And so it seems to me that this sort of fits into what you said about these projects that tack on a podcast where you can tack on an audio recording of you talking about the project. That's fine and maybe useful for some people. But to actually get anyone to listen to that is a different issue. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that we're not really trained to do. Yeah. And and we found that with with Active History, like I created a second feed I don't even remember when it was, but we had a bunch of recordings because people would send us recordings of conference sessions, of of talks that they had done, and we would post them. And so I created another feed to put those out there. But I, I think I did it for a year and then we just, it, it's still there. You can still find it, but no one did when it was live. So I don't know who would find it now. And the same is, is sort of true. I mean, I, I post everything to YouTube as well. And one of the reasons we we did that or that I wanted to do that was as sort of a secondary place for the audio to live just in case everything collapsed and, and died. I wanted the audio to be in two places just as a safety measure. Mm-hmm. And those numbers are, aren't good by any means. What, what's over there on the YouTube, with the exception of a couple actual videos that the Active History channel has. But if you look, the, the majority of the stuff that I do is like the History Slam episodes don't have a lot of views. I'm, I like that when people find it, they stay on it. Our retention on YouTube is pretty good. And there was a point where we actually made money off of it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Then they changed the rules on how you monetized and wow. we didn't have enough subscribers to monetize, but there was a time in which we were monetized and we made like eight and a half bucks. And I was, I was like mm-hmm. eight and a half bucks. That's <laughs> but, but it does, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort to to get out there and to put it in. But it's just, it's, it's not something that we're trained to do. It's a skill set that we don't have. I would argue I'm not, I'm not great at it uh, at this point. I, I try my best, but it, it even makes me uncomfortable sometimes when mm-hmm. like, if my Twitter feed is just me saying, Hey, listen to the most recent show. I'm like, that's not an interesting Twitter feed. It's like who wants to follow that? So I try to come up with other things to tweet here and there to try to be funny and, and as much as I can. But it, it, it is awkward. And even for me, booking guests, I have way more success booking guests through publicity folks than I do hmm. through direct contact of academics. Either they, it's rare at this point, they don't write back. I, I don't know if it's because most of the people who I write to have either heard of me or in some cases actually know. But when I first started, a lot of times my emails would go unanswered. And for a while, I kept a list of people who like, I had this idea of, oh, I'm going to be huge one day. And these people are <laughs> never going to get on. Like, oh, it was a stupid thought of, a, of, a, of, of, you know, I had these illusions of grandeur. But now, at least I'll get a response. But oftentimes people, academics, if I email them directly, they'll be at least somewhat hesitant to, to come on, especially during the academic year, mm. that the, the concerns there. But if it's through a publicist, I don't think I've ever gotten to know when it's through a publicist. So I, I think that feeling compelled to talk about it, I don't know what the publicists say to them to, to get them to do it, but it, it, is more, it is more successful booking that way. But you can tell that there's reticence. They're, they're uncomfortable doing it. And even at the end of every, every episode where I say, hey, like, where can people find more about 
your work if they want to follow along. You can tell that people aren't really prepared for that and don't really know what to say. The number of people who say, oh, I have social media, but I don't know what the account is or like, yeah, we have a website or yeah, like the book is published to these people. Maybe you can pick it up there. Like the people, who, the amount of people who don't know uh, how, how you can access their work, I, I'm always stunned by it. Yes, I do think that's pretty funny often when I ask people at the end, you know, where can people find you? And they'll be like, I, I guess I'm on Twitter if you'd like to <laughs> yeah. follow me there. Yeah. And it, it, it is uncomfortable because maybe, maybe it's part of how we're trained that when you're in a seminar room going through grad school, you don't want to be the person who is like the know-it-all, who, who is taking over the conversation. That, that's not what you want. And I think promoting yourself for a lot of people feels like that, that you, mm. you're, you're almost overshadowing other people that when you promote your stuff, you're saying, well, come to my stuff. And indirectly you're saying that other stuff's not important, but what I've come to terms with, because I, I think it's accurate is that when other people are promoting historical stuff or directing people to their stuff, like if more people are engaged in history in general, that's good for me because the more people who are engaged, the more people might find me. Hmm. And so if friends of mine or people who I know are promoting their stuff, I'll try my best to, on social media or on the show directly, try to push it because that's good for all of us, as opposed to the idea right now or, or that I had in the past of, you know, if, if oh, my, oh no, if like, if David Boris's show is good, then maybe people won't listen to my show. But that, that's a, it's, a, <laughs> it's like, it's a stupid thought to have. And it did take a while for me to get over that, but I think it's just part of this general idea that we have as people who have been trained academically at, at the graduate level to not over promote yourself, that it's, it's seen mm. as gauche, I guess. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. And, and I'm still uncomfortable with it as well. You're going to have to get over it. Like you got to do it. Like, <laughs> you just, you got to yeah, yeah, push yeah. it, you know, it's, and, and I, I think it's easier to when it's a sh something like this, because for as much as, I'm the host of the show. The, the logo of the show, the show says hosted by Sean Graham. I, I often feel like I'm promoting the guest, mm -hmm. right? I'm, and, and I feel that way on the show too, when I'm, when I'm talking to them and when I'm doing the intro and the outro, it's always genuine. Like I, I never lie about what, what I'm talking about, but I always feel like I'm, I'm, I'm trying to sell the guest. I want their experience on the show to be good. So I, I, I'm interested in what they're talking about and, and the enthusiasm, whatever enthusiasm is on the show is genuine for me in their topics. And when I do the intro and the outro, and then when I promote it and I'm doing the tweets and stuff for me, it's, it's, Hey, come listen to this person who I think is really interesting. Mm -hmm. And yes, it's the, sh the show has my name on it, but for me, it's part of it is promoting them. And that's one way I've gotten more comfortable too, with the promotion of it is, you know, come listen to all these really cool, interesting people who I've had the opportunity to talk to. Like you could skip over my parts, right? Like I might talk for a minute and a half, just hit the fast forward 30 seconds button every time I talk. I don't care. Listen to listen to the interesting people who are on the show. Right. No, that makes sense. That, that makes sense for an interview format show as a way to think about it. That, that probably makes me feel a little bit better about it going forward. <laughs> Do you think that there are any lessons or, or I guess... What are the benefits of academics stepping into this sort of history podcasting space that is mostly populated by not academic historians? What do we bring to these conversations that are mostly being dominated by journalists? 
Well, I, I think we bring a certain level of knowledge and, and expertise in, in subject matter. I think sort of subject matter expertise is important. Yeah. The other thing, though, I, I think that we benefit from or can benefit from by doing this more is becoming better storytellers. Hmm. So, you know, we're, I've recorded a show that as, as we're speaking, it's not out yet, but it will be out by the time this conversation comes out. And the book is called Talking to the Storykeepers. And it's, it's about really storytelling and, and telling stories of storytellers. And, you know, you asked earlier about why journalists dominate the space is because they're better at telling stories. Right? Journalists are trained in telling stories. Historians hmm. should be, but aren't. But that's essentially what our job is, is to tell the story of the past. And yes, there's interpretation. And yes, there's certain things that you have to do in order to do it successfully and based on the bounds of the, the discipline. But essentially, we are telling stories of the past. Mm -hmm. And we're, but we're just not good at it in general. So if you can get out there and work with journalists or, or listen to how they present their stuff, Craig Baird, to me, is a great example of this. He's a journalist who has gone back to journalism, but is still doing his, his show, he's, he's really good at understanding how to craft a story on topics that you would think, who cares, right? He, like, why? Like, some, sometimes when he, he puts up his thing, he's like, this is what I'm going to talk about. I'm like, really, Craig, that, like, that's what you want to spend your time on? But he does it, and it makes sense because he's a good storyteller. He knows how to drag out the details of everything Right. He can he can you know, mm. get that water out of the stone, so to speak, in order to craft a, an interesting narrative, an interesting story that has a larger point to it. And that's something that we're not great at. We mm. want to focus on the point. Right. You know, one thing that we, I was told, certainly as an undergrad and I've subsequently told students of mine is you got to answer the so what question. Yeah. Right? The so what question is so important in history, which it is. You have to understand why it matters. But at the same time, if you only focus on the so what question, it's not always the most engaging, right? You have to actually tell that story and then make your point. Mm. Right? So, you know, it's and that storytelling aspect, that element, I think, is something that we're not the greatest at because we're not trained in, in telling interesting stories. I don't think that makes a lot of sense. Sometimes I think about this and th there are two sort of storytelling goals that are often overlapping, but not quite. And one of them is to tell an interesting story. And one of them is to tell a significant story. Right. And I think that historians are really, really trained to tell the significant story with interesting story sometimes being secondary. Some people are better at telling a compelling story than others, yeah. but obviously significance comes first. Journalists or a lot of these sort of more journalistic oriented podcasts are better at telling the interesting story sometimes some of them are very good at still talking about significance some of them less good at talking about the significance and some of them i think run into issues of exaggerating the significance yeah. of certain things for storytelling effect right. or, or that sort of thing so i think that both historians and journalists have something to learn from each other in terms of this significance interesting parallel right well i, I think though that oftentimes what journalists are good at is answering the so what question at the end so they'll tell their story mm. and engage you in the story and then hit you with what the significance is. Whereas historians, and this is, again, how we're trained, is to answer the so what question at the start and then to continue to explain why it's significant throughout. And just in terms of a narrative storytelling process, that's not always the most interesting yeah. way to do it. Because if you know the point before you listen to it, then it kind of starts to drag. 
and you know, when I was, oh, I remember when I was in first year, we had an essay question on an exam and the professor said, tell me why it's important. Tell me again. And then tell me again why it was important. And that's basically how you had to answer the question. And that's essentially what, what we do is we write the introduction. Here's the main thesis. Here's what the book is about. And then we're going to just keep bringing it back to that thesis the whole way, the whole way. Whereas a journalist doesn't necessarily feel compelled to do that, it seems, that they can just allow the story to go and then hit you with what the significance is. And yes, sometimes it might be exaggerated. Sometimes it might be a conclusion that we disagree with. But narratively, it works, to me, a lot better in terms of just engaging an audience in the way we typically do it. We've been talking about history podcasting as a monolith a little bit. Yeah. But there are different styles of history podcasts. And two of the key different styles are narrative podcasts and sort of chat interview based shows with usually more than what, you know, that, that style has more than one person. Often the narrative podcast is hosted by a single person. Mm-hmm. How do you think the format of a given history podcast shapes the way the content comes across? Yeah, I think narrative is, is what we're just talking about. Narrative has to be that storytelling element. Like you can't, you can, I don't think you could have a, a really good narrative show that works as like an academic book would. Like, I, I just don't think it does. Like it, it has to be more of that storytelling. And I think what narrative podcasts can do is it, it, there's a, a great range to it. Like it can kind of take the, the listener on a bit of a journey and you have more elements that you can use. And when I teach about radio, we talk a lot about the orality of things. So you can you can benefit from that. And you can go, if you're doing something on the Second World War, the First World War, you can use audio clips mm. more effectively. You can try to transport the listener to that time, to that space. You can use music cues effectively. Or you, can, you can drum up emotional response through the audio in a way that you can't in an interview show. So... To me, it, it just allows for that level of engagement. Now, I've, I've done a series like that with the Eastern Ontario branch of the Ontario Association of Social Workers. It's called How We Helped. If you want to go listen to it, it's available everywhere. Five episode series. And it was fun. I, I loved putting it together. But, and I've listened to it, but I don't like listening to narrative stuff as much. Hmm. I, I personally don't. So the stuff that I listen to, both history and otherwise, the, the majority of the time, is the chat stuff. That's where I find it more interesting. I, I want to know more about the person who's writing it. Like, how did they put it together? Like some of those behind the scenes stuff of what their process was, how they approached it, uh, what surprised them about this. And to hear it in, a, in an informal context that is relaxed, that is engaged. That's what gets me going. Cause you know, when I go to a conference, I hate the presentations. I hate them. I, I hate them so much, but I love the Q and A, mm. right? The only reason I sit through the papers is for the Q and A. And the reason is so many people read their papers. They just get up and they read them. And I, I've said this on the history slam before, and I will die. This is the academic hill I will die on that I know how to read. If your paper is so good, hand it to me. I'll read it. Like if, 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 if the writing is so brilliant that you don't think you can do better by talking like you're a, a normal person talking to other people, then hand it to me and I'll read it and I'll take 20 minutes to read it and then we'll have the Q&A. Because mm. I hate when people read to me. When I was five years old, my parents read to me so I would fall asleep. 
that's how I feel when people read at me <laughs> at conferences and I drift. I really do drift. And therefore, when I listen to narrative stuff, oftentimes I will drift more easily when someone has is going through a script. Right. So for me, it's the chat show. That's how I engage with it. That's why I learn. I, I really preferred seminars to lectures as a student. I prefer teaching seminars to lectures because even when I'm giving a lecture, sometimes I feel like I'm drifting in my head. Uh, like I, I just, to me, it, it's more interesting to do it that way. I think I'm in the minority of that. I think the narrative has proven to be more popular with the market. Mm-hmm. We did a roundtable on the History Slam in in the latter part of last year with podcasters, and that was the response that they've done when they've done interview stuff, their numbers are lower Mm. than when they do some narrative stuff. So, you know, I I recognize that I'm in the minority of that. And I also recognize that narratively, you can tell a story more easily than you can in a chat show. But I think you get more out of the historian or whoever you have on through a chat show. I think there's more information that comes out. Uh, To me, it's just a more engaging environment, but you get two very different final products, both of which have, to me, incredible value. It's just a case of, as the producer, what do you want to do? What are you going to be better at? What are you going to be more engaged in? And then as a listener, what do you want to listen to? What, what will actually keep your attention? Mm. And so there's space for both. They both have value. To me, though, I just lean more towards the chat stuff like this. Right. I think for a lot of people, the narrative is sometimes the easiest way to start learning about a topic, right, is sort of you a narrative of whatever it might be, say Canadian history is sort of the building blocks for understanding mm-hmm. Canadian history. And then all the further pieces of information you learn can sort of challenge that narrative in, in yeah. ways, bits of it, or tweak it slightly, change the periodization, you know, you sort of have a vague familiarity with or something like that. And so for a lot of people, that narrative is very appealing to learn about a certain event as the baseline. But I think to get into further depth, those sorts of interviews or or conversations are a really good way for people to expand upon that that narrative basis for what they know. Yeah. And, And one of the things too, that I think a narrative thing can do that oftentimes chat things are a struggle with, and I know I've struggled with it, is everyone starts at the same point on a narrative, right? The, it, it establishes, a good one at least, establishes the starting point mm-hmm. of, all right, like, so if it's, you know, if it's a Civil War thing, it's all right, it's May 1st, 1962, we're here in this spot. And so it establishes your base that everyone therefore goes through the story on. What can happen on a chat show, an interview show, is you are starting at a different place potentially than the audience, or you, you, we don't establish what the starting point is, which I early on, if you listen to the first, I don't know, 40 shows of the History Slam, and I, I wouldn't recommend listening to all 40 of them because I'm not that good. And in, in, in some of them, the guests are all good. Again, fast forward to me. The, the guests are good in all of them. I'm not great in, in some of them. But one of the problems was I was going, I was starting too far ahead with the guests and I wasn't establishing for the audience exactly what we were talking about or where we were in the the discussion of the topic. So I had to reset and I, I really try to focus on this every episode now is reset what's the starting point, make sure that me and the guest, as well as the audience, here's our starting point and let's move on 
from there. And that it's changed my prep for the show. I, I prepare differently now than I used to based off some of the comments that I got from the audience. And, and I think that's something that in the chat show, again, we, we forget about doing that, bringing the audience with us. Whereas in a narrative, they're so much better at saying, here's the start, because that is the start. Hmm. Uh, whereas in a chat show, it's just, hey, let's, let's chat, right? So those, those sort of narrative requirements need to be brought in to the, the chat show to make it more effective. You mentioned that you've changed your approach in the past over time. What are some of the, maybe some of the ways that you've changed your approach and why you made those changes? So the biggest one for me is I don't read full books anymore. And by read full books, I mean the way that you would in say a comp. Is, is mm. like right like you sort of quote unquote read them yeah you know what that yeah you know what that means right going through the book like you would for a comp i used to do that the problem that i i had was again because it's not my air th- these books aren't in my area and i would get excited about something and i'd be like oh well, let's talk about this and the feedback i got from the audience was it, it felt a little inside baseball mm. right it wasn't as specific as like hey on page 400 you say this let's talk about this like it wasn't like that but i wasn't doing enough to to allow the audience into what we were talking about. Mm. And and again, not in the sense of like for lay people or anything, just in the sense of, I wouldn't explain the topic before we started talking. Like I would just say, Hey, let's talk about this issue without saying what the overall purpose of the show was. Yeah. So I don't read the same way as I did before. I want to go in with essentially the same amount of information that the audience member will have. And so the way I think of it is that, I am trying my best to ask the questions that I think the audience will have based off what the guest says Hmm. and based on the topic. So, you know, I have a baseline of information that I don't think is any more than anybody else that might listen to the show again, which is why we don't do broadcasting because then I think my baseline might be a little different from somebody else. But for for the most part, you know, I I don't think I have, like I'm terrible at trivia. So I don't think I have a a general (laughs) knowledge base that's greater than anybody else. So I want to be there and ask the questions that I think anyone who could potentially be listening might ask. And so therefore I don't read in the same depth before. I do afterwards when I am writing the post, I I go through the material in more depth so I I can have more to say when I'm writing the post for the site. And then the other thing is I don't write down questions anymore. Mm. I write down keywords. So, so at the start of a show, I will say to a guest, like I've, I've stuff prepared, which isn't a lie, but it's, it's keywords and it's five or six keywords of things that I want to make sure that we get to. I always ask the guests to, is there something that you want to make sure we get to that might not be obvious to me? Usually they'll say, no, I think we'll be fine, but sometimes they'll, they'll have something. And that allows me not to be so focused on the questions and listening throughout the entirety of whatever the guest is saying. Because again, early on, and the first one we ever recorded is episode two with Victoria Lamb Drover, who was great and so patient with me when we did it. She was there and I had a list of 10 questions that I had written out and I felt I had to get to all 10 of these questions. And when I listen to it back now, it feels fragmented because I'm not necessarily responding to what she's saying, which is very interesting. So now I try to, you know, I I know where I'm going to start. I have a sense of where we'll end. Not always accurate, but I have a sense of where I'll end. And I have the keywords that I think we'll want to talk about. But 
95% of the show is me or 95% of the questions I ask are me responding to what the guest has said. So I feel like I, I used to over-prepare. I spend the same amount of time preparing, but it's a different type of preparation. So it allows me to be more loose, relaxed. And part of it is just the reps of doing it. You know, we've done two, over 200 of these. So the repetition of doing it and knowing really kind of what works with people, what doesn't work with people, it, it has allowed me to be more comfortable. But that's been, those are the two biggest changes is, <laughs> it's going to sound bad, reading less and not preparing questions uh, <laughs> in advance. But the, to me, it, it's, it's made it more fun for me to do. And I think it's made it more engaging, both for the, the guests and I think the listener as well. Right. No, I think that makes sense to have a more free-flowing conversational style. It makes sense to not over-prepare. I tend to be, I, as you know, uh, <laughs> I wrote all my questions for you ahead of time. And I tend to be somebody who wants to have the things pre-prepared. But I recognize, based on your comments, that that probably sometimes boxes the conversation in in certain ways. So it might be worth trying at some point a more... Right. Well, but not necessarily because like if you're willing to like if that makes you feel comfortable, that's what you should do. Right. And, you know, I've had guests ask me, like, oh, can you send me some questions in advance? And I I jot some questions down and I'll send them off that are basically just my keywords in question form. And and I send them off and I'm happy to do that for the most part, but I don't want to be bound to it. And I don't want to feel like we have to do these things. And if then that's all we're going to do. So like if you have a list of questions Sometimes you have to feel comfortable not getting to one of them, or sometimes yeah. you have to feel comfortable shifting off of it if that's where the, the direction that the conversation goes. Mm-hmm. And early on, I wasn't flexible enough to do that. So, so now I am. So again, with my, the key words that I've written down, sometimes we don't get to them all, and that's fine. And the way, too, I justify it in my head, and sometimes I even say it on the show, is there's a whole book here to read. Like There's a lot of more. Like We can't cover everything in the 45 minutes that I have the guests. So being comfortable with that is, is key. But I think for, I don't know, do you feel comfortable without questions? Like, would you feel like you're going in too unsure of what the conversation would be or? I think for me, see, I always, I always tell my guests as well that the questions are more of a guide than a script, right? So Mm. I may not stick to them exactly, or we may not get to everything or that sort of thing. But I think for me, part of it is my own comfort level that I tend to be somebody who likes to prepare that stuff in advance. Part of it as well is for my guests' benefit. It's not necessarily an interview about something they've written, right? And so we've watched the same movie or something. And if they don't know what I'm going to ask, you know, I think I've had some guests who want to like jot down some ideas before the show or uh, maybe even like look up one or two things that they're not as familiar with. Not that I expect anyone to do that. I, I don't ask anyone to do that. I feel like that would be an unfair request of their time. But I think sometimes for my guest, it's more comfortable to kind of know what's coming. Yeah. And I think that's fair, especially as you say, if you're doing something that they might not be like expert in, mm-hmm. or if you're, yeah, when you're talking about a movie or something, that that does make sense. And, and that's a benefit that I have of primarily talking to people about something that they've written. I mean, the majority of what we do is books. Sometimes it's documentaries and we have you know producers, directors on, but again, they're intimately familiar mm-hmm. with everything. Right. And I'll say, too, that's an exception that I make is that I watch films before I interview the people for the films, because I can't I haven't yet to figure out a way if anyone knows of a way that I could do this where I could not watch it 
and still have enough information to ask to, to have a sense of what it's about. I would love to have that because I, I have I've yet to figure it out. I know how to do it with books. I don't know how to do it with any sort of documentary or film that people send me. So that's the only uh, exception I make. But it, it is a benefit to me to have people who are like intimately familiar with stuff because they're the producers of it as opposed to commenting on something else. So it is a different dynamic for sure. Sure, sure. Do you have a favorite episode of the History Slam or maybe a favorite story from recording an episode? And, and why is that? Your favorite story. So it's interesting. I don't I, I don't have a favorite episode. There's an episode, I think it's in the 60s. Sabina Weber came on. She did a presentation at a conference I was at on death masks. Hmm. And I, I want to say it was 2014, the, the CHA in 2014 in Victoria. I, I, but I, I can't be sure about that. But I was so interested in the presentation. I thought I, I, I was unfamiliar with death masks. I had no idea what they were. I was enthralled with it. I thought it was the best presentation at that conference. And I had her on and I was I loved the discussion. And the audience just said no to it. Like it 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 just didn't for whatever reason, I'm maybe because the topic was death masks. It I think it might have done the worst numbers ever on the show, which bummed me out because I think it's one of the better topics that we've done because it's just so so different from anything else. Hmm. So that's one of that that kind of stands out as one of a favorite uh, of a group, maybe of favorites for me, just because I loved it so much. And the fact that the audience didn't made me wonder if maybe I'm, I'm off sometimes on uh, what I think the audience will, will go with for me. In terms of recording, we've had a few interesting scenarios, like, you know, like everything else over, over the course of the years, you know, we've had fire alarms go off. We've had security approaches at some places uh, when we've recorded on site, you know, I recorded, an episode at the Beijing airport, Oh wow! you know, in the lounge at the Beijing airport. We did an episode, which is kind of an interesting experience there. But one of the ones that taught me the most was at a conference in, I honestly don't even know where it was the first, it was in Washington, actually. It was the first time I went to the culture, the pop culture association conference. So it was in Washington, DC. We're at the hotel and we were recording. I think it was with Kelly Irby. So it was early on. And the only place we could get was near the elevators. So we're talking and you can hear the ding of the elevators go and people, you could hear sort of the, the chatter of people going by. And I thought in the moment, like this was going to ruin the show because all this ambient noise. But then I listened to it back and the ambient noise gave it so much more energy. It, it made it <laughs> like, it made it feel like it was clear that we were at this place and there was energy around it. And it, to me, it made it so much better. Mm. And it's something that, I've tried on occasion to incorporate more of that is let's record somewhere that isn't a purely sterile environment. Like let's record out somewhere when we can. Uh, it doesn't always work and it's hard to do, especially the last two years. It's been really hard yeah. to do, but I love those episodes where we can get somewhere that isn't purely sterile for that reason. And then the other one that stands out for a similar reason is I was in Dallas and the fifth floor museum, to the book depository they have a museum there and they agreed to come on the show so they the director of the museum come on when i was in dallas and it's one of the only times where they were very nice i really enjoyed it like it's not a criticism but it's the first time anyone basically refused to answer a question that i asked and oh. it, it was a really interesting experience to to go from you know academics don't have a lot of 
media training. And I, and I also don't really ask questions that I think are going to get anybody in trouble. I'm just trying to learn more about what people do. But I guess, you know, I asked, a, you know, I asked a question about the Kennedy family and their relationship potentially with the museum. And I was told that we don't talk about that. And uh, mm. so I tried to ask it in a different way. And I was told again, that we don't talk about that. So, it was, you know, it was that, that kind of stands out to me as learning that that's the first time I felt like an interviewer as opposed to someone who's just talking to people. Mm. So that, that kind of stands out as, as a, a moment for me that I was just like, did I just ask like a, hard question of somebody like <laughs> refusing to answer. So th- those are some of the things uh, along the way that, that kind of stand out, but every episode with, 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 I think I can think of one exception and I won't tell you which one it is, but with one exception, every episode I have turned off the mic, put it away and, and thought to myself that I enjoyed that. Like I enjoyed that discussion. I enjoyed that conversation. It was worthwhile. And as a result, there's not any one episode that stands out to me as like a favorite. Okay. Do you have a favorite yet? I know it's early, but like, do you not feel like, do you feel the same way? Like, cause I, I just imagine, like, I know Jerry Seinfeld says like when people say, what's your favorite Seinfeld episode? He's like, that's like asking which breath of air was your favorite. Cause you know, they're, you know, you just, they're all good. Cause it gets yeah. you to the next one, but I don't know. Like, does anything stand out for you? No, I think I don't think I have any that are necessarily my favorite. I've enjoyed the process. I I do think there are certain episodes that sort of exemplify what I'm trying to do a little more effectively than others with this sort of, you know, engaging with sort of meeting the public where they're at in terms of learning about history. And some of that is on a lot of that is like me and, and my I'm not putting that on my guests, obviously, but like my maybe choice of topic or the questions I asked or that sort of thing. I don't know if I necessarily have a favorite. The other thing that's been fun for me is a a lot of the people I've had on so far are, and I'm trying to change this now as I go past, you know, the first year of creating this, but a lot of the people I've had on before are people I know personally in some way. And so, and so it's been fun to, but maybe some of them are friends of mine, but in a very different field. And so an opportunity to learn a bit more about their own work that I don't actually get to interact with very much. Well, it's a, it's a different dynamic, right? When you know the person personally, right? Like yeah. one of the reasons Aaron Boyce, who I mentioned earlier that he's been on as much as he is, is one, I think he's a good guest. And when we're talking, it's usually about like nonsensical things, like some of the more fun topics that aren't necessarily directly related to like something that was just published. It, it's just fun to chat with him uh, about these things. And especially when we bring in other people who we know hmm. into that environment, like it, it, it's a very different dynamic of a show. And it's, it's a lot of fun to almost catch up with your friends while also doing, doing a show. And and that's like, I noticed that with yours. That I was like, when I, when I was going through the catalog, I was like, wow, these are a lot of U of T yeah. grad students. But I thought, well, that makes sense. Like we, we probably haven't seen them in person in a couple of years. And as you said earlier, this is a great chance to kind of catch up with people and overcome the being alone a lot over the past two years that you can't get out and see the people who you used to. Mm-hmm. It makes a lot of sense. I did the same thing with the History Slam that we, we do a lot more shows now, in part because it's easier for me now that I'm working at home just to schedule and stuff. Mm-hmm. But also there was more of a, an impetus to want to go out and talk to people, right. both people who I know and people who I didn't know. So it, it makes a lot of sense that you feel that way. Right. I also like this idea of trying to incorporate the environment into the podcast itself. 
that seems challenging for me to attempt to do because I'm already really bad at the <laughs> audio editing stuff and right. the getting the quality right. But maybe that's a <laughs> a goal for the future to try right. that out. Yeah, like if I would promote a show of mine, if I were to sort of say one that I think really worked is decoding monuments and, and murals. No, not murals. Monuments and memorials, excuse me, with Tanya Davidson, where we recorded in an office at U Ottawa talking about sort of the premise of her work. She's a sociologist who, who here in Ottawa does walking tours of, of monuments and memorials. And then we went out to Confederation Park and talked in the park as we walked through and, and looked at some of the memorials. And so that one has both that sort of interview setting, but then we also get out on the street and you can hear the cars going by, you can hear people going by. And to me, it adds a, a layer of authenticity to it. Mm-hmm. So, for, you know, like, again, like, not that you could have done this, obviously, but so like the Western Development Museum episode that you did. But if you could do part of that, like in the Western Development Museum, right? when you're talking about the, the things, right? Another idea that I've had in the past, uh, my friend, Sarah Smith, who's been on before, she's an art historian. And I, one of the things I want to do is just go to a gallery with her, with, with my microphone. And she can explain to me why art is good. Because I look at it and I'm like, this is, what, what is this? Right. But, but like, like right, those sorts of things, I, I think when you have that, that, that space to it, it, it adds something and you can tell when it's fake though. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the thing that like, it has to be, has to be authentic. It has to be genuine and it has to be worthwhile to do, but it, it, it is challenging, especially in this environment for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Sean, this has been really fun talking to you and I feel like I've learned a lot and, and, and th- have have new ideas for my own show here. So this has been great. Thank you very much for making the time to come on. Where can listeners follow you in, in the History Slam? Yeah, so uh, search History Slam, wherever it is you get your podcast. We're on all the various channels, all that. Uh, you can also head over to activehistory.ca. All of our episodes are under the podcast tab, along with all, the, of course, the written material over there on the website. So you can find the full catalog of 200 and... 10, 15, whatever it is, shows that we have up. So they're all fully accessible. You can check out the YouTube channel as well, uh, youtube.com slash active history. It's got all of the podcast episodes as well as some of the chats of recordings from conferences, as well as a few little documentaries that people did for us. So you can find all the material there. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at the Sean Graham. And any ideas for shows that you think might work better for me than for this show but if you have ideas like set them here but history slam at gmail.com for any show ideas if you want to pitch me anything always happy to hear from people awesome and it is a really great podcast so i really encourage people to go check it out thank you i, I appreciate it appreciate it thanks so much for taking the time today hey my pleasure thanks for having me that's it for today's interview thank you for listening and a very big thanks to sean for joining me today i'll link the link to the history slam in the episode description if you'd like to check it out And if you'd like to learn more about the early history of Canadian radio or the Canadian history podcasting space, I've included some reading recommendations in the show's description. And if you'd like to see some historical images related to early radio broadcasting, check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to support the podcast, it really helps me out if you share it to someone you know. For a podcast of this size, telling someone that you think would like it really makes a huge difference for growing the audience. And if you'd like to leave a review for the show, that's also a big help. I'd love to hear what you thought of our conversation, so feel free to leave me a comment on one of our social media pages or send me an email at offcampushistory at gmail.com. Feel free also to send me suggestions for future episode topics. 
Music for the podcast is by Paul B.S. and his Novelty Orchestra, and artwork is made by Nethkaria. Thank you again for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time for some more off-campus history. Music